This podcast is created in partnership with Film Studies and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. We acknowledge the tradition of custodianship and law of the country on which the University of Sydney campuses stand, as well as the Darug people, where we all grew up. We pay our respects to those who have cared for and continue to care for country. I wish I knew how to quit. I see death. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Get away from her, you bitch! I'm gonna go. Do you want me to go f***ing trash your lights? Take two. Film verse. Film. Hello, listeners. I'm filmmaker and comedian Craig Anderson, and welcome to Film vs. Film. This is the podcast where every episode we throw two different films into the ring together, discuss their place in history, their modern virtues, and how they stack up against each other. Which film will hold up, and which film will be left on the cutting room floor? Today, it's a comparison of two very different types of horror films, both penned by one of the biggest selling authors of all time, Stephen King. One film is a terrifying descent into badness, and the other is currently the highest grossing horror film of all time. With me today, as always, are my childhood best friends. When he's not hanging out in storm drains, he's watching horror movies. It's Herschel Isaacs. Hello, Craig. Hi, Bruce. (laughs) Also with us is Herschel's identical twin brother, associate professor in film studies at the University of Sydney, Here's Brucey. I always find it funniest when you say mm. identical twin brother. It's not all the stupid stuff about storm drains and stuff. We say identical twin it's brother. It's because you've I got try. so much to introduce. I, I, I feel bad, you know, uh, yeah. throwing in jokes because I'm trying to get everything out. I like that this uh, this pairing of movies was almost the start of kind of where we developed the podcast. Yeah, yeah we should say to our listeners, it's, it's, this is our second time round for We have recorded this yeah. uh, podcast before, and the first time we recorded it, we did we it in rubbish. a very combative way. But not only we that, it went for, it went for four, four hours. hours. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we uh, can't release a four-hour take on The Shining and eat. Well, no one wants to hear it. No one wants to hear this one, but <laughs> stick with us. We promise it's going to be great. People would be ready to listen to four hours, just not of us. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, at this point, I'd like to remind the listener that we grew up in greater Western Sydney in the gorgeous motorway-adjacent town of St. Clair, a town given its name in 1980 by the Landex Corporation. And as always, we'd like to give a shout-out to an institution that made us love movies. Bruce Herschel today, it's Stephen King. Stephen King, you know, when I was an adolescent, Stephen King was a, a god to me. Mm. I mm. idolized the guy. He captured, I mean, I've got a phrase here that for, for my youth, he's like the chronicler. Like, you know, Bruce, you always talk about Bob Dylan's chronicles. Yeah, but for yeah, me, yeah. Stephen King chronicled what it was to be, you know, a young person in St. Clair with all with the challenges and not mm-hmm. fitting in or mm-hmm. having aspirations and not knowing how to move forward with it. Stephen King was that to me. It was authentic and it was legitimate. And, yeah, it really got me through lots of time. But mm. even as a Luddite, someone who doesn't read novels <laughs> myself, I, I didn't read, but you guys read it. I remember yes. we just would talk about King, but there were enough movies, and I was reading enough books about movies yeah. to know just, you know, every property that he'd written so far. Well, I remember he's like, the, like one of the few film uh, authors that I think – he became more marketable than most directors. Mm. He was even up there with movie stars. Absolutely. So it didn't matter what he produced. He was optioned before the book came out. So mm. I, and it always I said Stephen of, King's yeah. It or Stephen yeah, King's yeah, whatever. Because yeah. yeah. exactly. Stephen King meant so much to both me and Herschel and, and also to you, Craig, in terms yeah. of the movies and the culture. I don't. There will never be another author like that in our lives. 
right? Because it was a certain time when you're growing up. It also was a big part of our just reading lives and mm. art lives, right? So, I mean, reading it, which is more than a thousand pages. Mm-hmm. I remember Hirsch and I was so excited when The Stand was re-released in about 1990 mm-hmm. with an extra 500 pages. <laughs> I mean, you know, it was released with 800 pages or 900 pages. Now it's 1,500 so you, pages. You, you, well, we would have been 14 then. Yeah. And you guys you, are excited. You, like you're hanging, you go to the bookshop and, and you, you know, buy this book. Do you remember where we got it from? We got it from Target. Target we got in from St. Mary's. Ta- exactly. Yeah. Target mm-hmm. St. Mary's. Mm-hmm. So we live in St. Clair. That was next so to the pool across the road from St. Mary's Swimming Pool, right? Taking the stand home that day for yeah. me and I read the preface in Target I was so excited I read yeah. it while we were in Target waiting to get to wow. leave with our parents <laughs> definitely I think for both for both of us um, Stephen King was that person that you were anticipating the next book the, Stephen King wrote an amazing novel which I think is one of the great novels of the 1980s called Misery yeah. right oh yeah now in Misery Annie Wilkes was exactly like me and Herschel Except we weren't we weren't psychopathic on top of it, but Stephen King has a unique insight into his relationship to fans. Yeah, and I think you see that in it, right? Yeah, you definitely see it in The Shining, and you see it in the way Kubrick is really smart about this idea of obsessive relationships with artists, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that Herschel and I definitely had an interesting relationship to King because it wasn't just oh I'm reading this book. Like it was a fundamental part of your existence. But it was also like, an extension as well, because one yeah. of the things that I found, okay, so there was this person at school, I'm not going to name names or anything like that, but <laughs> she was walking around with it at one point. Mm-hmm. And so I was immediately attracted to her because she would walk around from class to class, high school, obviously. She'd go from class to class and... Actually, it might have been economics class, so you and I might have been yeah. sitting next to each other, right? And she would always carry it with her, and she was reading it. It turned out she was a massive Stephen King fan. And as shy as we were, and, you know, I struggled to get more than three words out if I was talking <laughs> to a girl. But as shy as we were, it was kind of like Stephen King that brokered that conversation. Yeah. And she yeah. was going, well, I love Stephen King, but it's also because it's so weird. And I'm gonna, obviously, we're going to get into this. Like Stephen King, he's not entry-level, like, you know, um, clean kind of writer. This guy is pretty intense in terms of Very what he Very explicit, um, sure. politically incorrect, yeah. you know? And, and it was amazing growing up on that now, looking back. Every novel, in order, reading it. That's what we did. Like, when we got book prizes in high school, yeah, exactly. we spent oh, it on right. Stephen book King. Book prizes! Right? I so remember that, yeah. Each book prize was 30 bucks. Uh, for every subject you came first in, you get 30 bucks. So you take it to the bookshop and you're buying books. And that's one of the great rituals we had every year. So my mum would drop us off and we go and buy books. That was the only reason to do well at school, book prizes. Well, I remember <laughs> I, we had the VHS of Christine and that was like a big thing in the house. We got yeah. to watch Christine. Yeah. Not many other films we got to watch of his because Cujo, my mum and dad would always make fun of Cujo when we saw Why a dog that? out and about. No, not the movie. They would just call a dog Cujo oh, okay, all the yeah, time. I, I thought they making weird. fun. I was trying to make sure they no, making no. fun of the movie Cujo. Well, at Collard and Groggenflix, there was Salem's Lot, mm-hmm. and they had that Nosferatu-looking vampire yeah, exactly. on the cover, oh, and yeah, that no. used to freak me out. That was out. a great cover, actually. Yeah. Great cover. It also freaked me out. I remember the ads on TV, because they put Tim Curry yep. on, you know, in, in the ad as well as yep. Pennywise. But also... We saw Lawnmower Man in cinema. Oh, Lawnmower Man. 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 Actually, better than I think we saw that at the said at the time. It's not the worst And that's, pre, mm. that's Pierce Brosnan, pre-James Bond. Yeah. That's when he would take any role at all. <laughs> and remember the guy that played the Lawnmower Man? Yeah, Jeff Fahey. And they yeah. were trying to yeah. push him into like a movie star. And there's a mm-hmm. scene where he's mowing the lawn and he's got his shirt off and that. Yeah. And this woman's like salivating over him. You remember how we would always say in high school, you know what this is like? Stand mm. by me. We'd yeah, make that yeah, joke yeah. all the time. Course, we're walking so around, we're walking home. Stand by me. I can't tell you how much I love watching Misery on VHS yeah. as a kid. Because Annie Wilkes is also overweight, 
she's polite. Mm. <laughs> she's down, you know, like a real yeah. normal person of the of the what do you call it? Like a salt of the earth type yeah, person. Yeah, yeah. Which is like all the people in my church, but yeah. like most of the people in my church and my family, she was incredibly pent up and <laughs> hidden. You know, <laughs> hidden psychosis is going on <laughs> underneath all of the the smiling faces. Yeah. A lot of people have compared Stephen King to like the Dickensian world, where that's just Charles Dickens. Mm-hmm. Well, now it's like Stephen King's world. You know, the, the person mm-hmm. yeah. next door, but taking the regular person and inserting them into an absolutely overwhelming environment. That's just an incredible <laughs> thing. Sorry, I just remembered the film he directed. What's that one where they're in a... Maximum Overdrive. Oh, man. That was with okay. Amelia Estevez. Yeah, that's a yeah. nuts film. Okay, yeah. Shawshank Redemption? Yeah, many mm. consider you know I, that movie. The, I don't reckon holds up as well as it did. Yeah, I, I wonder about that. I yeah. haven't watched it for. I mean, I it, watched it, it about three months ago. It's dated heaps, which is okay, mm-hmm. but it, it's hard to even believe that one person wrote all those works. Mm. Yeah, and they were all made. That Hollywood keeps going. Well, that's back the to thing. It's not just the novels. It's a property. It's an yep. IP machine. Yep. Like it seems to never and it's, end. It's stronger now than ever exactly. before. That's yeah. the that's other thing, thing we should say. Yeah. I'll tell you what. When I I was writing this intro, I looked up because I thought, well, surely he's the number one author of all time because mm. of all these properties. He's number twenty. Mm. People above him include Danielle Steele, Barbara Cartwright. Yeah. In uh, terms of com- R. total Stein, copies, total. Yeah. So William Shakespeare's number one. Yeah. So I don't know how they get this metric, but <laughs> you, know, you know, I guess if they. Could but put I mean, um, J.K. Rowling has to be. Like, she's above way him up. at yeah. the moment. Yeah, yeah. So but a whole I, bunch see, of, I'd say that she's above him in terms of sales. number of copies sold and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. But if you talk about it, like I don't know the phrase that people throw around now, you know, the Marvel universe or something like Stephen King's universe is the breadth of work. So he's up, what is he, 90 novels? Like I'm saying novels. He's got yeah. short story com- comp- uh, compendiums or whatever. Mm. The Stephen King universe, you, I don't know where you're going to go to find somebody reaching <laughs> no, that. On. That is no. a huge intro about Stephen King, but I think that's going to knock off a lot of stuff because we're mm. going to... He's the central theme of this yep. episode. Um, it, it, today's episode will be full of spoilers, so if you haven't watched the films then you might want to lock yourself in a storage cupboard for the next 90 minutes or until the door magically unlocks itself. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's get into it. First up on today's show, it's 1980's The Shining. So, transatlantic master of cinema Stanley Kubrick had already made the groundbreaking 2001 A Space Odyssey, the controversial films A Clockwork Orange and Alita, and a whole host of critical successes of varying genres when he signed Oscar-winning megastar Jack Nicholson to star in The Shining. The film sees Jack move his wife and child to the Rocky Mountains to be the winter caretaker for a large and isolated Overlook Hotel. Over the course of the film, Jack optimistically fouls to write a novel and eventually succumbs to madness, attempting to murder his wife and child. The majority of the movie was shot on a soundstage with a small crew and a grueling schedule. It also pioneered the use of the Steadicam in famous tracking shots of Jack's son Danny riding through the labyrinth of the empty hotel. The film opened in Liniment Cinema releases on the same day as The Empire Strikes Back, then grew to a much larger release over the following month. It tripled its budget over the following few months and was met with mixed reviews, including a very unfavorable reception from Stephen King himself. Dr. Bruce Isaacs, what's your take on The Shining? Thanks, Craig. The interesting thing about The Shining was I like how you say that it had mixed reviews because it wasn't received very well. Mm. And one of the things that I find interesting is that maybe more than any other film I can think of, The Shining has been totally reread 
and I think recon, you know, reconsidered in recent years. In right? recent in years, or, yeah. So where's in and the Bruce, past? Just to be clear, when you say reread, you mean the film, like in? Oh the, yeah, yeah, I mean yeah. just by critics, by mainstream audiences, yeah. But also kind of by that whole world of cinephiles, right? And by that I mean people who love the movies and who kind of live the movies, you know, like the three of us. Mm. The Shining is that movie that if you don't love it. People think there's something wrong with you. <laughs> like it, it's kind of it's a badge you wear that The Shining is something of significance for me. But that's not how it was released, and that's certainly not how it was received. And as you say, Stephen King's voice was a huge part of that reception. He publicly trashed this movie all over the wow. shop. He did interviews, he did talk shows, and he openly, you know, he was scathing of Kubrick's own work on the film, um, and he thought he fundamentally misunderstood it. My response to The Shining is not only is it one of the great horror films, I think it's one of the great Stanley Kubrick films. Mm. Because we've reconsidered what it is, it's a movie that is supposed to be a horror genre movie. I mean, what's the what are the big horror movies for you guys? that define the 70s, that lead the way to the... Oh, sh- so, I, so The Shining shooting in Kubrick takes the skeleton of an idea and also one of the big bestsellers. It was voted 
I forget one of the greatest horror novels. One of the greatest, horror novels, the, the greatest horror novels of all time. What at that time? At, at the, the time. time. I mean, was, this is the way The what? Shining. A lot of people don't realize now what The Shining meant as a novel. Yeah. The Shining was considered to be this sort of reinvigoration of the ghost story. People didn't do many mm. ghost stories anymore. Yeah. Right. But so The that, Shining was like you know it's like the haunted house story. It's kind Which of. Which in the seventy, like when was the Amityville? That was until the early eighties. Well, well, early people 80s. often like yeah, talk um, about like turn of the screw and stuff. In that it had also those undertones of well, what's really happening here? Yeah, like, there's is, an ambiguity. Is Jack weird, or is he? Yeah, right. Are there illusions or delusions or whatever yeah. it is? No, no, I think that's a good point. The turn of the screw, Henry James. That, that's all in what King's doing, and he gets lauded for writing mm. the defining horror mm-hmm. novel. Of a generation, so I think there's a degree of arrogance. Understandably, there's a degree of arrogance in King. He comes from nothing. He's also had, you know, substance abuse problems, and so now suddenly, not only is he vindicated in terms of his choices, but he's now held up to be the poster boy, but also the a true, like what's the word, like in in writing an auteur, mm. but a you know. A, a real talent in writing. Now, King's always been chasing this. People have said, oh, he's a hack. He's, mm. It's good. You can take his books turn into movies. Mm. When he got um, the, that American award. Order of Letters, yeah. Order of Letters. People going, but it's Stephen King. That's ridiculous. But that was a big deal to him. So he comes into this from having been vindicated, really. And then Kubrick comes along and says, no, I don't subscribe to all that hype. I'm throwing all of that well, out. Think, I'm going to make my own thing. I think we're kind thing. of burying the lead here. They make the movie, right? Kubrick yep. makes a movie. Yep. King goes, what the hell? Yes. This is not what the hell I was... What are you no. talking about? So King's and there's a lot of disparages between bo- both the novel has different things going on. Comple- well, the, the ending's completely different. Right. But I, I guess the thing I want to suggest is Kubrick takes a horror genre novel, right? And it's es- essentially about a guy who... Look, I have no issue reading him as an abusive husband. He's yeah. abusive to his son. He's a damaged person. I'm going to say, and on this re- watching, yeah. I was going, well, this is just like a, a, a domestic TV. violence. It's a, an allegory for what happens in domestic violence. Yes. I, I mean, and I think, you know, there's a in, in the American cut, which is about 40 minutes longer, which yeah. most people should watch if they've not seen The Shining, don't watch the, the short British cut. Um, there's a wonderful scene where Wendy uh, is, who is she played by? Shelley yes. Duval. Yeah. There's a lovely scene where uh, Wendy, played by Shelley Duval, uh, has an interview about violence to their son with a social worker. Mm. And it's so interesting to me that they took that out for the British oh, that's version. Right, because he's broken his arm. That's right. And so there's the sense of that Jack has broken his son's Jeez. arm, which I've got to say, as the father of a five-year-old, is extremely disturbing. Mm. So King has what he considers... But that's in the these, book, though, That's in the novel. Yeah, so that's so the King has these layers of complexity in terms of characterization. He says then that Kubrick takes it and turns it into a completely different vehicle. What I would suggest is Kubrick makes it a Stanley Kubrick movie. This mm-hmm. is the great author of this gener- of that generation. He makes it a philosophical film. And I think in the process he invents kind of the sophisticated psychological horror film. I don't know whether that exists before The Shining. I, I would say, to, in answer to Bruce's question... Paranoid thrillers or something like that in the seventies, yeah. where even you're parano- not sure they're like sci-fi or. But they usually horror. within a context of a, a sort of political critique yeah, of some true. kind, right? And you can't trust the, the Shining s- is the more this. I see The Shining as you take this, the the framework of King, and you just unhinge it so dramatically. Mm-hmm. So the Jack Nicholson character, he's not really, he doesn't make sense at all. The performance is so unhinged. I'm amazed that Kubrick shot that and thought, 
okay, let's print that. The way that Jack Nicholson goes on. But now I think of that as one of the great film performances because it just doesn't conform to, to anything normal, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, Kubrick takes this and makes it one of the great experimental genre films, which, to be honest, he does with science fiction in, t- in 2001. Mm-hmm. He does it with the period uh, film in Barry Lyndon, which is one of my favorite films. Um, so he takes horror, but he's not going to do a standard horror movie. That's not but in it, his bones. And I, I completely agree with that. Like, The Shining is a very uneven film for me. But what I take enormous pleasure in is just how stunning it is as an original work of art. You know, I think of um, the use of the steady cam you mentioned before, mm-hmm. Craig, which I'll talk a bit later when we do mise-en-scene. It's totally uncompromising in the way it frames this idea of what is happening, what is not happening. Yeah. There are things that make absolutely no sense. So, for example... It still angers he, me now. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you get stuck in the storeroom. Right, yeah. she puts him in there, but fine. We're going to get into this. <laughs> well, I how yeah, how does he get out of the storeroom? Who unlocks the door for him? That's the but that's but that's, that's the I've, only I've, instance. That's, that's the only instance yes. of supernatural possibility. Exactly. In the Everything movie. else I don't, is real. Okay, so you know, but gonna, Kubrick's done that intentionally. You guys he's, know he's what I think. With your mind, this man. is not a supernatural film, right? This is in well, my who unlocks the door for him. No, but then we're moving into David Lynch. Then now we're moving into David Lynch. Okay, so what I was going to say is. That I think that there are there are ontological differences, right? And by that I just mean mm. what is the nature of reality in these movies? So, okay, <laughs> you got supernatural movies like The Exorcist, where okay, it's possible there are supernatural forces like the devil. Yeah. Then you've got non-supernatural horror like Silence of the Lambs, and you've got serial killers. Yeah. I'm suggesting why do we always have these polar opposites or these dichotomies? What if there's a continuum between those two? And we've also got Jack's photograph at the end, which obviously <laughs> right. can't be accurate. I mean, unless the guy is reincarnated or something. That can't be explained. No, no, but that for me is the most beautiful image because what Kubrick's now telling us is everything that exists in this hotel doesn't even make sense temporally. Can you imagine Stephen King, though, at the premiere when he sees that photograph at the he end? Must, he must have lost his mind, I reckon. <laughs> he's like <laughs> six foot four and a half. Like probably he was like just sitting well, there seething. Do you want to just take a moment and think of King in the cinema going, watching the trailer, which is just a lift in slow motion with blood coming out? He's going, okay. Yeah, I'd like, like to like, what someone is, get this and also at that point, on the phone. King's got a lot of power, right? King can yeah. like call up the studio and go... No, come yeah. on, this is crazy. What is this? Actually, you're absolutely, that's, what I, that's the interesting part of the story. King's a powerful guy. Yeah. The studio's paid him a fortune to get this property. <laughs> um, I think I was telling you guys a while ago that one of my favorite stories is in the King uh, nonfiction history of horror called Dance Macabre, which is a great book, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, he writes this in the mid-'80s, and he, he recollects his time on The Shining because he's still angry. Like, <laughs> five years later, he's still furious. And he says that, let me give you an example of what I think went wrong in this movie. I was at home asleep one night and Stanley Kubrick, no, the phone rang and I went and I picked up the phone. Mm. It was like 3 o'clock it, in the morning. Was it really? It was yeah. middle of the night. I'm half asleep. It's Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> and Kubrick says, I'm having a lot of trouble with this movie. Stephen, do you believe in God? And I <laughs> Hang said- on, wait. So Kubrick says Kubrick that. says to Right. So Stephen King says, well, I believe- in there being some, I'm paraphrasing, it's been many years since I've run, I believe in some kind of benevolent force that's, that, that, that helps us and, and is good. And Kubrick apparently says, that's the problem I, I'm having. I don't believe in that at all. And he's trying to adapt something by a religious-minded writer mm. into probably one of the most atheistic, secular, you know, 
fictional frameworks you could imagine. Can I just? Of course, he's going to destroy the book. Can I just give Stephen King voice for a moment? And I just want to. I just want to read from. Uh, I, uh, hang on. I a 1980 say, excerpt. I imagine he's got voice at eight o'clock the next morning and he wakes up again, calls his manager, and goes, "What the hell? Three thirty in the morning. This bag. guy's calling me." So, so, so this, this is number. Stephen King in Rolling Stone magazine, 1980. As far as I was concerned, when I saw the movie, Jack was batshit crazy from the first scene. <laughs> I had to keep my mouth shut at the time. It was a screening and Nicholson was there. But I'm thinking to myself, the minute he's on the screen, oh, I know this guy. I've seen him in five motorcycle movies where Jack doesn't play the same part. And it's so misogynistic. I mean, Wendy Torrance is just presented as a sort of screaming dishrag. That's Stephen King, 1980. So the mm. movie is brand new. Um, successful. You can. He's furious. Oh, he's furious. Right? He's you can see how furious. But I mean, it, it's also difficult to consider how this sits with us, especially Bruce, you and I, mm. in that we love Stephen King. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I check out Stephen King's tweets in the morning just because I follow <laughs> the Donald Trump fiasco through Stephen King's anger. Mm. So, uh, yeah. and I can understand Stephen King coming at this really hard, and which he did for a long time, many, many years. But right? he harbored it. He still harbors it to a degree. The Shining might not be the most perfect movie. This is not about a perfect and coherent work. This is about the degree to which these images have just seeped into our cultural consciousness. Like the opening verse, the opening credit sequence. Oh, and the, the music. Oh, yeah. The music, the well, overture. You know, all of us sitting at this, we can hear that. We can see yeah. the, the high shot of the car as it goes through the mountain. Well, I mean, right? seeing that, and then even today when I was on Wikipedia, I couldn't believe most of it shot in a studio. Yeah, I'm like, hang on, stage, how yeah. is that a soundstage? Yeah. Like, that, Have you seen the doco? You yeah, 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 I've seen yeah, the doco. Yeah. But even in the doco, they've built the whole hotel because yeah. it's got so much money. It <laughs> looks like it's the hotel. I didn't yeah. even know that was the same. Have you yep. seen 2001 Space Odyssey, the way they do um, um, the, Bowman? The circles? The circles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, they, yeah. they built a six-story mm. structure cost for that. A, it cost uh, $800,000 to build that thing. The studio forked it out. Wow. In, in, in 1968? I mean, this is Kubrick. To build that was ridiculous. Yeah, and, and you know, something we should say as well is that Kubrick professors like OCD... He was massively. He was one of. He was just below grandmaster level as a chess player. Loved chess. Mm -hmm. So this is a person who was meticulous mm. in every way. A thought that I had, um, and certainly prepping for this, I didn't have this the first time around. But I was trying to think. Okay, how do you position Stephen King and Stanley Kubrick and their relationship through this? I've been reading the the Stanley Kubrick Arthur C. Clarke book um, recently, which is wonderful. I think Stephen King was angry because he had created like 2001 or work of greatness in the literary world. And he basically had someone throwing it out, like they were dissing the book because they, mm. they didn't think it was, it was you know, worth giving voice to in the film. But he, he rejected the vision, got his own vision going. No, no, I, no, that's I agree, so but I think King was also angry because he saw the Kubrick movie as an affront to his religious vision. Yeah, so right. I suppose my answer to this is why has the film been reconsidered? I think it's because Kubrick continues to be considered the great auteur. Maybe of anyone of the modern cinema, there is no other Stanley Kubrick. And I think we come back to The Shining because it's been revisited as just that incredible great moment of, you know, the, the unhinging of traditional horror and the start of something really I modern. It still fits out because I'm a massive horror fan, but mm. it still sits outside of everything else that yep. was happening. Like I, I can't think of, think of the 70s, how I think works. Italian, yeah. I think of the beginning of Slasher. Uh, I was thinking know, through think Argento, so all the things that I love in that era. Well, I was Halloween, thinking of The Wicker Man. Christmas. When was Rosemary's Baby? That's late 60s, right? Late 69. So that's the only one where I kind of... But then, you you know, that's the, that's that whole apartment block, claustrophobic domestic space mm -hmm. of horror that was big in, in European cinema as well. There's nothing that prepares us for what Kubrick did with The Shining. Stephen King's novel is much more conventional 
than Kubrick's film. Much more. Yeah, no, I agree with that. That's that's absolutely correct. The other thing I'd add with The Shining, and this is only after I watched it again in, in you know in preparing for our podcast, but you could say there are probably fifteen scenes in The Shining where you could just watch that scene because yep. it's so wonderful to watch <coughs> just those yeah. scenes. Yeah. To some extent, that for me often encapsulates Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, and like the experience those of scenes, yeah. you just go, well, okay, this guy is just absolutely studied the way to put this together and it's absolutely beautiful. That sets Stanley Kubrick apart, I think. Um, I, I think you're right, the meticulousness, he sees it as a huge sort of template of moving components and that the scale is massive. He's working with completely unhinged performances from all three leads. The only person who's got a normal performance is maybe Danny. Yeah, Danny. If you think Scat Jack's, Man is off the Scatman as, as Mr. Halloran, yeah. what is going on with that guy's performance? I mean, he is mad. Pick yeah, things up. Yeah, yeah. Check Scatman on YouTube. Like a lot of, like <laughs> he's in a talk show where, because he, he composed some music as a singer as well, right? He just <laughs> but, lost it. But in remember, the is it in the documentary, Vivian, uh, the documentary, and he's Kubrick crying Dorfman. when he's talking yeah. about. And he's talking about the experience. I'm so he lucky had. to be on there. Yeah. Yes. yes. And, 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 and Danny was such Danny. a beautiful person and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Everyone says that Danny was uh, quite stuck up, though. But I think. <laughs> <it> like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> take that out. kid. <laughs> but I, I guess. So, so if we think back to those performances, nothing, nothing could have been anticipated. Um, I don't think anything in horror pre prepared us for yeah. Camera the Shining. All right, well, there you go. As you can tell, we're huge fans of both Kubrick and King. But let's see if we can uh, calm down and be uh, a little less long on our next one. <laughs> Take two. Our second film today is It, Chapter One, from 2017. Originally released as It, but renamed when the sequel went into production, this is only the second film by Argentinian director Andy Muschietti. Based on the novel by Stephen King, the film is about five childhood friends. It's five, isn't oh, it? It's about seven. Oh, it's a whole bunch of kids <laughs> who battle a menacing presence in their small town. Part serial killer, part supernatural clown, the figure has the ability to plug into the individual fears of each child and torment them, sometimes to the point of death. <laughs> Throughout the film, the children must learn to fight together and overcome their fears to defeat the evil force. The film went on to gross over $700 million worldwide and break many box office records for an R-rated horror film and became the highest grossing film based on a Stephen King property. Herschel, this is a very modern looking and feeling film that plugs into our nostalgia and I think the entire world's nostalgia for the 80s. What's your take on it? So we've said this before, but I want to I emphasize to our listeners how important it is to keep Stephen King and our love of Stephen King in the back of of our minds as we discuss this. For me, this movie doesn't do justice to the source material, but I, I have a few reasons for that, and I think, you know, I want to introduce that and see what you guys think about it, because I guess I want to make the argument that where Stephen King writes, you know, his epics, which we might say, the, the really the big works, and, and I think it has a, a bit in common with The Stand as well, I just don't think he's ever, it's ever really been successfully adapted, in my opinion. Look, I find the film entertaining. It's two and a half hours. So it's it's not often you head into a cinema, and Bruce and I watched this sitting in the front row, remember? Mm, yeah, which, yeah. Which, which was a hell of a lot I of fun. I watch everything in the front row. <laughs> so it's not <laughs> no, often. true. Old man Bruce. Watch everything in the front row. You sit there for two and a half hours, and it's a horror movie, and 
that's fun in itself. If someone says to me, you're going to watch a two and a half hour horror movie, I'm in it already. I don't no, care I'm scared where this goes. Because I'm going, a horror movie should be 90 minutes. Yeah. I'm going to get scared a bunch of times but and see, leave. That's, that's, that's the kind of interesting point we're making about, I think both The Shining mm. and it in terms of adaptations. It's horror. But Stephen King would be offended if you said, hey, you're a, you're a horror writer. Because he would say, okay, but I, I don't just do horror. He's angry about the adaptation of characterization mm, and yeah. place and time and setting. So when you watch it, well, first, it's not even a scary movie. Well, no, I would watch, like, Stand By Me. If that went for five hours, I'd go, yeah, great, I'll watch that. <laughs> yeah. But th- I think of it is Stand By Me plus some go- scary But I want to yeah. bring that in. And, and, in fact, that's exactly my argument. That's, I think, where Muschietti gets it quite, quite wrong. Now I think he's the he's the he's the benef- he's the beneficiary. Hang on, of sorry. Can I just check? Did you two like the movie? Well, I you, I mean you know we've talked I think about it's this possible. In our I think it's, it's I, I've I got in my notes here. Look, it's no. it's kind of entertaining. <laughs> so, it is entertaining in, short, in, in no. part. Yeah. But again, what I want to say is, I would point to two or three scenes that are entertaining. Outside of that, I think it's a studio vehicle really mm-hmm. to to cash in at the box office. Take Stranger Things. Yeah. You've got Stranger Things running through this. Stephen King acknowledges that. I've got a quote from him saying, yeah, but it's kind of like an incestuous relationship. Like I see Stranger Things and I see, well, there's a lot of Stephen King in that, but there's a lot of, mm. you know, stuff that the movie takes that's Stranger Things as well. So that's quite an interesting observation, but I think. It, but interestingly, the children of it, I think are kind of movie brand of children. They're so stereotypical. Exactly. And I get that. Like the new the kids novel. on the block really annoyed me when I see the door open and it goes, bang, there's new kids on the block. What do you mean? like? The yeah, po- like where, a... where the Ben character has a poster oh, on the kids because right. yeah, they're trying yeah, yeah. to periodize it for yeah. the and 80s. And there's also not like Gremlins poster I remember being in yep. there so as well. Yeah, so there's a kind of, for me, there's an unfortunate stereotypical, I'm going to identify and I'm going to signify things to people. By like posters and pieces yep. of music, but hang on, are but we I'm not going to develop because anything. Wait, when Marty goes back to 1955, mm. we hear Mr. Sandman. If we were that old, don't ever say a thing against Back to the Future. <laughs> <laughs> no, but if we were that old and yeah. we knew Mr. Sandman when it came out, we'd be like, yeah. oh, here we go. No, no, it's, no, a, it's, no a, it's, a, it's an interesting a, point, no but I think there's a distinction here. Though, yeah, because yeah. so. Okay, sorry. Go I on. was completely <laughs> lost. Don't in, raise that again. Yeah, bad point by me. <laughs> I was completely lost in all. Like in our edition, all 1150 pages of this book, I was in it, you know, in every way. It's got different time frames. It's got young characters as children. Then those characters grow up. It depicts those worlds in incredible detail. Mm-hmm. The issue that I've got with this movie is that I would say perhaps once or twice, three times, it achieves something that is kind of memorable. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, the way uh, Muschietti and the designers, the way they stage the lake scene where they jump into the lake, mm-hmm. that to me... It does achieve that kind of I mean, that's an innocence, scene, but that even that is so cliche. It's very right? cliche. I mean, it's saccharine. It reminds you know, me of a commercial. I'm like yeah, I'm about to see and, a logo and, when they I mean, jump and, in. And I agree with you, Ursula. I kind of found myself maybe for a couple of times in that movie watching it when we were at the cinemas. Occasionally, I got emotionally invested and thought, okay, that's that's quite beautiful. And from memory, don't they play like a, a Joy Division song? Yeah, yeah, I think it's Joy Division. I think. It's, and, it's, it's, yeah, you know so what it is. So they're tapping the right buttons. You know, uh, and I mean, the, the use of Joy Division is interesting because they they signaling a kind of alternative culture, in the middle of a really stereotypical mainstream journey of maturity, right? Like it's like so obvious. I the thing I think, I can't believe this movie made seven hundred million. Okay, that <laughs> I'm so interested in that. So I will say I don't love it. I'm fascinated by it as a a property, right? Because. I think it made seven hundred million because of Stranger Things. Yeah, I don't think it made seven hundred I mean, million. Factor, but Stephen I think King. we also have to consider social media and stuff like yeah. that. But Stephen King, the tropes in Stephen King, 
they they generate money. We know yep. that Stephen King, ge- his ideas generate money. He's got the every person taking on evil in every context. You've got some horrible depictions of children and adults, and I think well, that's what this film's got, right? Oh, I like that. This is pretty. This is pretty shocking yeah. stuff, right? This is pretty hardcore stuff. I guess what I'd say is. I want to contrast this with Stand By Me. So funny thing is, now I have watched this movie with my son, Lockie. He's 10 years old. He was probably 8 years old at the time. Um, what, Eat or Stand By Me? Eat. So we've watched It and Stand By Me. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I remember him saying, but the thing is with the, with the friendship and stuff, they're not the same as the kids in Stand By Me. In Stand By Me, there's an authenticity oh, and a nostalgia to it and a sense of loss to mm. it that you don't get in It. In fact, I would argue, that the best moment in the t- in in both films, let's say the it and its sequel, because that's it's two films for for the for the novel, mm-hmm. the children and the adults, and don't forget that's completely um, uh, fictitious. Well, that's that's ironic, but it's fictitious. King didn't write it that way. It's all interlaced in the book. Yeah. In the movies, yeah, it's there are no two separate. parts to exactly. Each. Yeah, well, yeah, which, that's which what I damages from the Tim Curry version, which damages <laughs> that. But you the, always for got me, high bro. <laughs> the best moment is in the sequel where James McAvoy plays Bill Denbrough buys his bike, and Stephen King plays the cameo. So mm. you can immediately tell that Stephen King wrote that cameo. That That's what <laughs> captures the book. Mm. That's what Stephen yeah. King is. I agree. Not that's the best scene in the second it, movie. I'd say that's the best scene in both movies. Yeah. But <laughs> Sorry, I've just remembered King in, is it Creepshow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. where he's, he's covered in, in moss and yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. he's playing well, like you know, a yokel. He's like your, your, he's, he's like your Alfred Hitchcock yeah. in his in there was the, a kind in of adaptation. No, 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 Alfred Hitchcock never did anything that insane. That is a crazy... The, well, that's um, George A. Romero and, and King yeah, got together yeah. and makes it. See, there you go. That wasn't based and on a book. The, that uh, was, uh, Romero did Dark Half later. So they've, ah, they've always mm. had this this relationship. I, I, the thing with it, um, I had, I, I did, everyone said Pennywise was played so brilliantly and I've got nothing against it. I think it's a, a great performance. <laughs> the way they structure the whole digital monster. Yeah, yeah that's what I was about I to say. It was it just, played great by a computer. It was poorly done. Yeah. I don't Digital kills this movie. Digital did absolutely kills you know, this movie. You can't suggest that you want to catapult me into a nostalgic sensation of what the 80s was and then digitize the 80s. Well, I'll never the understand The 80s is an that. analog generation. I'll never understand why. Okay, so... Who am I to say, right? The movie made $700 million. Muschietti is probably the seventh richest person in the world or something. But I'll never understand why you would take Stephen King's novel from the 80s, early 80s really, mm. right? Like well, 84, 85. 85. You take Stephen King's, one of the big bestsellers, mm. but it's 1,150 pages. It's this huge to- this tome, right? Why would you then take it to the digital thing and have the kids sitting in that room with the slide projectors playing mm. and then... Pennywise comes out of the slide. I just thought that looked really stupid no, to and, me. But, but it, that is such a revelation of um, a generational break. You know, I'm really interested in the break from analogical culture to digital culture. And it is just such... Look, if we can say this crudely, The Shining is such an analogical movie. It's like sensation and it's real and tangible. It felt um, like I was being shown some kind of fictional big studio image of something that was going to make a killing at the box office because I think of Strange... I'll tell you who got a lot out of it, in addition to the production company of it, is Netflix on Stranger Things because Mm. that pretty much greenlit every other Stranger Things you want to do. Absolutely. Because it it showed you the culture that you were tapping into. Interestingly, I think the... there's very little characterization in it that's successful. I mean, having said that, I'll go to The Shining and say there's not a hell of a lot of characterization. I'm not going to cry at night mm. for any of those characters. But 
compare that to Stand By Me with the way Rob Reiner handles his characters mm. and also Stephen King's material. So I still make the argument that if you take something like The Stand and you take it, it's never really been adapted that successfully. I prefer the early miniseries by a long shot over the new versions mm. of it. But if you look at the shorter works, Misery, Shawshank Redemption, yep. Green Mile, these are the characterizations, Stand By Me especially, these are, these are focused works and they give much more breathing room to the characterization. And definitely carry on and add to that. Carry, of course, the successful yeah. adaptations because I think also when you get filmmakers who take the source material but actually want to make it cinematic, mm-hmm. they actually they don't feel that they have to do. You know, Muschietti talked extensively about how how much he loved the book, and and you know that that book is a kind of the movie is a sort of love letter to the book. I don't want to watch a lovely little book. I want to watch the thing be reinvented in cinema. And that's where I think the movie of It is pleasant. It's interesting. There are a couple of uh, nice scenes. I like some of the casting. But gee, at the end of it, it's kind of like two and a half hours. Wow. It's a long you know, movie. And the next one's really even longer. It's edifying. I, for our listeners out there, um, it's well worth watching the first miniseries of Tim Curry It. Because mm. you're a fan of that, Craig. Yeah, I'm a, I, I mean, I loved it when I was a kid. But they, they do some very interesting things. Like Mike Hanlon, the the like the guy who stays, the only character to stay in um, Derry. Derry. <laughs> Derry. Mike Hanlon, the only character who remains in Derry after the, the, hor- the horrific events as children, he then becomes a librarian and he's investigating it. But what they've done interestingly in this miniseries is they've turned him into like a film noir detective. So he wears the trench coat and everything. <laughs> yeah, oh, I, I liked it. Yeah. No, I, really? I found, I, I found I that found, interesting. In, um, that's the original. I the found grown that interesting. Ups I couldn't stand uh, in in the second movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, the grown ups are just James McAvoy. I'm a huge fan of James McAvoy. But that scene where they're sitting in the restaurant with the fortune oh, cookies and God. that. Geez, but I you know what stupid. sucks about that is that they've split it into two. Is that yep. When you intercut between the young and the old in the in the, the original series, they're informed. Yeah. But left alone, I think the kids do work better in the first film. Everyone 100%. like you don't mm. hate the kids. Yeah. But the the adults, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. But without the intercutting between them, like from the series, it's just not as. I think that's an excellent point. Like maybe if if I was going to sum up where I think it goes wrong, I think the movie fails because you strip away the basic narrative glue, which in the mm. novelies. It's always a reflection. What mm. makes the novel sophisticated is it's about adults thinking about their childhood. And that creates a the suspense that the movies about can't that have. Yeah. Because what you fear is when you go forward and backward in time. Don't forget, the novel begins with, okay, obviously spoiler, we've already said there's going to be lots of spoilers, but yeah. the novel begins with Stanley committing suicide. Now, that can only happen in the opening 10 minutes of the second film. Now, the problem is that dynamic is completely shifted in the movies. Yeah. And you lose, you lose that kind of foreshadowing and that kind of, you know, that clever plotting and suspense that King was able to generate. Mm. And you also lose the fact that you took this kid standing, you had the whole world ahead of him and the difficulties he had with his parents and how religious they were and stuff like that. And then you've got this older guy who's found himself, he's become an accountant, he's successful, but he commits suicide. You lose that in the movies. Your summary is a really good one, Herschel, because I think where the movie goes wrong is... It's hard to do that, adapting Stephen King. And then what it resorts to is the, the obvious, the cliché, the stereotypical, because it knows that's going to make money based on where we are culturally. So I think it taps into everything from Stranger Things mm. so that it does massive business. And we saw it, it did that I think if you're going to adapt Stephen King, you have to do it very carefully and you have to have a vision for what you're going to produce. Mm. Um, 
Muschietti didn't get that. 700 million because it was the right, and Stephen King admitted this in a quote from him, he said it was the right time and the right place. That's why, you know, it is what it is now. Mise en scène. Now it's time for our mise en scène where we zoom in on one scene or sequence from the film. Up first, it's Bruce with The Shining. So with The Shining, I said before that one of the things that I think has drawn people to it, look, especially cinephiles and people who are interested in this sort of thing, is that technically it's been reassessed and people have looked back at just the astonishing stylistic qualities of the film. You know, we always knew it didn't really look like anything that we had seen before and we've all discussed here that in terms of the horror genre, like what a leap this had made. So Craig mentioned before this idea of the steady cam. And one of the things I want to suggest in my mise-en-scene, which is I'm looking at the sequence, one of my favorite sequences for a number of reasons, but when Wendy and Danny walk to the maze, Mm -hmm. and that is intercut with Jack walking to the model of the maze that's on the table. And it's at this moment where I think you're alerted to the fact something is horribly wrong. <laughs> and this guy is, you know, he's, he's teetering and then he's going over the edge. So just to, to, to provide a bit of background, a steady cam is just a rig that enables you to attach a camera and it's balanced through gimbals uh, so that you can move with this rig but it keeps the frame steady. So you don't get this jitteriness or this un- unstable way of filming something. Now, if you haven't seen one, they are literally in Aliens, the James Cameron film, um, what what uh, Diaz has her gun mounted on is yeah, a steady right, cam yeah. arm. Like okay. they just went, hey, let's put a gun let's on a that. Gun. <laughs> <It'll look cool."> <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was to say that in the Bourne Ultimatum, when Matt Damon, when the stunt person... Uh, jumps through the window in from mm, one building mm. to another, and the there's another. There's a camera person behind that stunt person jumping through the window with a steady cam, and that's in Jeez. fact how you get yeah. the shot right from yeah, one building so straight good. into yeah. another building. And the the steady cam, you know, imagine a cinematic his- universe of the 20th century where you don't have the steady cam, and then one day you've got the steady cam, right? So before it. People, filmmakers have been obsessed with movement since the very origins of, of, of any kind of moving image. So people have thought about how do you change movement, how do we create new kinds of movement. Steadicam gets invented, and this is the first time you attach it to someone's body, and you get a whole different kind of movement. One of the good things about it is you can put a camera on sticks, you can put it on a dolly or a trolley, yep. and you can move it. Yeah. But if you want to run in behind someone on a, on a trolley, um, like with with the, with the tracks, yeah. you're going to see the tracks in the bottom of frame yeah. a lot of the time. Yeah. So when it's just attached to the operator and there's nothing else around, yeah. it's incredibly you get this free, free sense yeah. of movement, and it's really smooth. Before, yep. people would feel sick if you moved so fast. That's right. And so the Steadicam kind of is. It's a game changer in the technology of cinema, but the point I want to make about the way Kubrick uses it, he uses the Steadicam not because it's a new technology. It had only been used in mainstream movies a couple of times before The Shining. It was used briefly in Rocky, right? And that was the most famous the film that staircase? he used. Staircase? F- I can't remember which one. It could be The Staircase Yeah, scene right. When he's with his coach, you mean, when he's talking to... I'm just imagining as he runs up the top and then the camera moves around oh, him in a circle. I don't I can't even possibly that. Right. But I know it had been used uh, for a brief moment in, in Rocky. But so Kubrick decides we will use that as the dominant way of visualizing the Overlook Hotel. And I, I, I my argument in this mise en scene is that 
the the steady cam is used to create a really new kind of movement and a feeling of movement. So if people remember when Jack comes into the overlook for the first time, it looks like nothing you've ever seen in the movies. Suddenly the camera is just following him as he walks all around. You kind of think, what is going on here? This is mm. a new way of feeling about movement. I right? absolutely love that sequence. Now, yeah. for our listeners out there, if you haven't seen the film Room what, um, 237, <laughs> which is the basically your conspiracy theorist Tin about what, for what <laughs> Kubrick was actually doing. But, you know, got to hand it to them. When you look at what Kubrick did in those scenes, in those mm. opening scenes, yeah. to orient the orientation that he sets yep. up, it's truly yeah. creepy. Like there's a guy, when you go watch this movie again, there's a guy coming in with a rug. Mm. He then goes off screen. Mm. He comes in about 30 seconds later for about a second and a half. Mm. I timed it. And, I timed and it on my phone. So, yeah, and, and he's you know, been walking and, the whole time and, and he comes back out at the bottom just next to a pillar. Oh, with the same rug? And then, yeah, and he's off screen. So it's actual life progressing. It's, and so if you insane. think about the obsession then with Steadicam shots. So everyone talks about Scorsese doing the entry to the Copacabana in Goodfellas mm-hmm. as the greatest Steadicam shot. But I think the importance in, in, in Scorsese is he's trying to show off with the Steadicam. Kubrick is not trying to show off. And I don't mean that in a dis- disparaging sense of Scorsese because it's Sounds one of the like wonderful... It. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favourite scenes. I teach that in, in first You ask Stephen studies. King what he thinks. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> but f- Kubrick's not showing off. He's actually saying... I'm using this to create a sense of movement, and this is the key point I want to make. He's, he makes you feel the presence of stuff in the hotel constantly mm-hmm. because everything's always moving. So in the scene, Wendy and Danny, we are on tracks here. They are running, and the track uh, is in fr- sort of at front of screen, and the camera is obviously on the track, and we just track with them laterally across the screen. They're running to the maze. We cut from there to Jack, and he moves into the depth of the frame. That contrast is just genius because it's really demarcating the sort of cleanliness of the track mm-hmm. and this weird embodied movement of the interior of the overlook, which is supposed to be really creepy. So Jack moves with a steady cam covering him. And when you watch it, and I want to encourage everyone to go back and just watch the opening to The Shining or watch the scene where we see the maze. In film theory, people talk a bit about this idea of a huge break uh, in, in, in the history of filmmaking where we get embodied movement. They use this term that when something moves, it feels like a body moving, right? Not just that you're filming a body moving, like filming Jack, but it actually feels like a physical movement and that you have a connection to the physical movement. I think Kubrick uses the steady cam to give us this uncanny sensation that things are moving around in this hotel. Okay, well, Herschel, what's your miss on scene? Take two. The scene I've chosen is, uh, it's the opening scene of, of Andy Muschietti's film. Now, the reason I've chosen it is because, I, as, you know, as I said before, I think there are a couple of nice scenes in this. I think there are a couple of interesting shots in this movie. Um, but the opening scene for me is taken almost scene for scene or shot for shot, um, moment by moment, out of Stephen King's actual opening chapter. Now, Stephen King's opening chapter to it was considered to be, you know, an, an, an incredible achievement. This would be chapter one. Chapter one, yes. <laughs> Chap- <laughs> chapter so one. clear on that, it's chapter one. Chapter one of or Stephen King's It. prologue or something. <laughs> All right, okay. Now, this is the scene with Bill Dem- With Bill Georgie, and Georgie going to get the boat. Yeah, with the little yeah, boat the little and boy. stuff. Yeah. I, I, and I went back to the novel and I looked at it and 
I actually think this is Muschietti's pitch to the studio. He's going, you don't mess around with what is a perfect opening chapter. I remember one of the reviews when we first got the novel, it was something like Time magazine, and said, absolutely one of the most horrific things I've read mm. because of the depiction of the murder of a young child and how horrible the whole thing what? was. What? What? This, you know, this is George The Times article? Oh, you're talking about for the, the novel, novel, novel by King. Should I Sorry. say that again? Was that no, confusing? no, no, that makes sense. I just didn't know what you meant. You meant that the, the review was about how King's mm. novel is... That, yes, it was a brilliant exactly. opening, but it was so, because it was so horrific yeah, and right. so effective. Yeah. So what I would pay credit to is Muschietti's staging and the people involved, the designers, the staging of that opening sequence because it's fundamental to the novel and it's also fundamental to the film because we get a sense of the, the trauma and the horror, not just with this family, but what's been plaguing the town of Derry for quite a long time now. It opens with, um, the, with the mother playing on the piano, this haunting kind of mm. music. And you have the voiceover of Bill and his little brother Georgie talking up. Bill, we find out, has been sick for a little while, and he had intended to go playing with his brother Georgie in the rain, but he can't leave his house. Bill says to Georgie to go downstairs to get the, the wax to put on the boat so that it, you know, it's, going, it's waterproof. And that scene is very effective, I think. Georgie goes down the stairs. We get the close-up of Georgie's eyes where you see the reflection in Georgie's eyes. It looks pretty menacing. We've then got the interesting sound effects, and it introduces a sense of of unease and horror into the film for the first time. At the same time, I think what is successful here is that you get a sense of the disconnect between parents and children. A mother who's yeah, playing that's going to be a massive theme that, in the whole film. And it's a, yeah. it's a theme throughout Stephen King. But the mother playing this morose music and the and the rain mm. of the of but the also afternoon. her separation from the two boys. Absolutely. They have this kind of interior world together. Exactly. But the mother's in some sort of I don't know, unusual depressive state, maybe sitting at the piano, and she's totally oblivious to this exactly. this, this narrative that's unfolding with the two boys. When Georgie walks out, then you know we've got those overhead shots of the rain mm. falling. I mean, I guess that's probably digital or maybe drone or whatever it is. <laughs> no, <laughs> just like because one of the big things people use is just rain machines, and you know because you can't tell like, yeah. how deep the rain goes because you're just in the drops. And what I love about this is it gives you a real sense of the town. Now, this is actually very important for the novel. It's very important for the movie. And I think they do this very intelligently. I went through the novel again. And sure enough, Muschietti follows it as he's walking. We come to Witcham and, and mm. all these places. And we get the crossroads. And the geography is spot on out of Stephen King's novel. When George is going down with the boat following the boat down the water and he knocks his head on the mm. on the on is the that road in the side. Novel? So it's not in the novel in terms yeah, of I knocking his head on it. But it is that he trips over yeah. um I think it's debris or something like that, um, as he's running. So it's quite true to form. And then obviously we get Pennywise appearing. Now I would argue that it's setting a wonderful scene here. It's very much by way of prologue here as well. As a viewer, mm. you get the feeling that we're setting up for lady events but we're starting to understand the characters, and then we're really going to shift time frames, which we do in, in the film straight after this. Where I would argue that it's less successful is Pennywise himself being introduced. The early parts are quite eerie. Then you've got the digital introduced, and then um, you know George is murdered. F the blood in the road afterward, I don't think is effective. It wasn't necessary in my yeah. opinion. It wasn't like <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> I just love you just crazy. It, it really wasn't necessary. <laughs> but that scene for me captures carefully what I think Stephen King envisioned in the opening to his novel. Mm. But it reminds me as well, Bruce, remember we were reading 
to bring Dean Coons back into it again. <laughs> Remember um, that book, Midnight? Yeah, had yeah, yeah. Dean Coons always had that opening prologue that would set the stage yep. for the later things to come. Yep. Muschietti's film opens up like a novel. All I'd say is that, unfortunately, he wasn't able to continue <laughs> that success into the rest of the film. <laughs> but, but, but the also, opening, I think, succeeds. I'm with Craig on... I don't care what kind of work you've done. I think the digital... <laughs> no, no, no. Because I, I agree with you. I think the, 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 the setting, the relationship with the brothers, the movement down to mm-hmm. the basement to get the paraffin, I think all of that is really beautiful. And I, the, the mother plane, I think it's Chopin or something in the background, mm-hmm. is really lovely. I don't understand then how Muschietti attaches an aesthetic around digital images to what is in every way an incredibly traditional, traditional. classical depiction. And when Pennywise, it's just a rupture we for me. Uh, and what is it when Pennywise wrong, opens his mouth up, that massive open yeah. mouth? Yeah, and he's got What's sharp that? teeth. And doesn't his <laughs> arms go for like four meters yes, they, out? They, well, they That's go out of the drain. And, and I guess my, you know, if you th- this is a question I had thinking about that scene because I knew you were going to do this for Miss Unsanitial. Have you, can you think of one mm. really terrifying digital monster of the last sort of 20 years. I can think of the in the digital of a lot era. of really unterrifying digital monsters. I know, but because, and, and I guess my theory would be we have a different relationship, you know, viscerally to digital monsters than we have to analogical I monsters. I mean, you take a look, uh, uh, here's one, but this is Spielberg. It's mm. it's the Velociraptors and the T-Rex in the first yeah. film, right? Uh, the Jurassic yeah. Park. And it's a combination of like three or four miniatures, yeah. there's robot and there's But there's the almost stuff. no digital. Right. Okay. So yeah. the T Rex at some point maybe T Rex. These are models, mostly yeah. models. Okay. All right. Well, then um, forget it. I like got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I got the, nothing. The, the Brachiosaurus. But even then, that's early digital. So we're talking about like basic green screen stuff. By the time you hit it, you're t- like especially effects people sometimes call them full cloth images, mm. where you're building a whole image using computer algorithms and 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 tools. Right. Yeah. Look, I'm com- I completely agree with both of you. For the life of me, I can't work out. Why you need digital for Steve? That seems it. Now, you, uh, how do you depict a clown? I get that. I get the issue with that. But why? Do <laughs> That's you... not an issue. No. It's a clown. <laughs> We've done it for hundreds of years. And we know how to do a clown. Why do we need to see George's arm? Now, in the novel, you find out that the clown bites the kid's arm off, right? But he just. But he doesn't stretch out four meters to bite his arm. And off. that's my point. Isn't this a case of less is more? Mm. Why did Muschietti yeah. want to introduce? The, the weirdness of, of... That is not what makes Pennywise creepy. It's not that he's <laughs> yeah, nuts. But, but it's because Muschietti and the studio understand one basic thing. We can no longer make 1980s, 1990s horror. So they update it by saying, yeah, hang on a second, who's our audience here, right? This is We're talking 13, 14, 15 years. They are cultivated <laughs> on digital images. That's true of Stranger Things as well because they did a mm. lot of crazy stuff in their last yeah, season. No, those things running around and that. Yeah. Listen, a headline. Little kid, little kid. Out and about, raining, a man <laughs> dressed as a clown in a gutter talking to him. Okay, that's scary. Yeah, yeah, now that's tell me, and he's got really long arms. I'm like, okay, man, whatever. Yeah, now and, you're and talking about. Why does his mouth have to open anymore. up so big? Yeah, and he's got a mouth that opens like a trap jaw. I'm like, okay, dude, now you've lost me. But doesn't that tell us something? Ab- doesn't yeah. that some- tell us about something about horror generally? Though we have to, as a viewer, as a consumer of it, we have to be able to position it in reality because there's got to be some kind of fear hmm. as to. If I can't relate to it, why would it scare me if it's so stupid? But also, what you just described, and I watched this recently, the Tim Curry version mm. opens the exact same way. They go right off the novel, mm. but they don't do the stupid things. 
Yeah. It's just Tim Curry. I there. remember and that's Tim Curry that's opening. It's the same thing. It's that mostly Tim Curry shot for opening shot. is her, like it's so terrifying. And Curry, I don't op- think the whole movie's terrifying, but that opening with yeah. Tim Curry. When you see the clown as, and Tim Curry in the drain at the start, that's truly terrifying. I was captivated by the introduction of Pennywise in this new version. But horror also, like fans of horror now, they want it to be real. They don't like digital. Digital blood from like 2002 onwards, mm. people went, no. Fans in action and horror, they all went, don't put digital blood in our films. We don't <laughs> like it. So there's been this push. Yeah. And the mo- best use of digital technology in horror and action is to stitch up mistakes or to, to yep. do backgrounds. Or like um, Doug was working on a horror film and they would apply the thing to the neck to be bitten off. Someone's getting bitten on the neck. Mm. Now, you've got to keep that real. The, the yep. flesh needs to come off. But what you can save time on is digitally cleaning up the bit where you've glued on the prosthetic piece, mm. right? Sure, no one's looking for that prosthetic piece, but they do look for the flesh, and they do yep. want the flesh to be real. That is an awesome point. And in fact, I just yesterday, last night, watched it. I know the last time you guys have seen this. Stephen King's The Mist out of Skeleton Crew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That That's a right fantastic movie. film. Yeah. It's really, the paranoia, the claustrophobia is really fantastic. But there are some scenes where the monster, like, bites the kid and stuff, right? Yeah. Or not bites, but pulls his skin off and that. And it's a prosthetic. It's obviously, it's mm. like, like it's uh, makeup and stuff. But it's so effective. Well, like, what it, about watching Dawn of the Dead? I remember seeing that for the first time and oh, I thought, yeah. oh my God, what... Which it one? felt the, like someone. Yeah, 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 late yeah. 70s. Um, I remember watching that thinking, I felt like someone was biting someone's flesh. Yeah. Whereas if you watch the Zack Snyder one, there's just, it's, it's all diminished. Uh, the, right? the, the stuff with Zack Snyder, the one with the gun shooting people, the Burt Reynolds in the street, that's all ridiculously mm. digital because they're I, so long The great allegory of this, I think, and the great moment of transformation for me, and there's a bit of work of, on this in film theory, is paranormal activity. Yeah. When that whole movie is based on the idea of a, of a of a camcorder, digital, but everything working analogically, filming in analogical time, keeping track of the 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 um, the time that has passed, and rewatching. Except when DreamWorks, I think it's DreamWorks, yeah, it was. get excited by paranormal activity and put up a quarter million to mm-hmm. do the last shot again, one <laughs> shot, and they totally stuff it up. Mm. Talk well, about a movie that is a that has the most brilliant allegorical stuff to say about our time and the crisis of a change from analog to digital culture, except get DreamWorks to just turn the whole thing on its head by making that stupid rush thing with the ghost that comes across yeah, the room. Yeah, that's such a stupid ending. Because like, there was did, some really scary stuff in that paranormal like activity. Yeah, the whole movie. You know, walking on the, on the yeah. telcom pad. Oh, that I, got, I got to see I was so lucky. They, they'd done one studio... Uh, one screening in America. Mm. This is before DreamWorks had bought it. And then it came to Sydney Film Festival. So I went to see it. And I watched it afterwards and I was like, what? So this you, is a great so you saw it without? And I contacted that. the filmmaker on IMDb. <laughs> he had his How contacts. Oren Pelly was there. And I was like, hey, Oren, I just saw your <laughs> film in Sydney. Yeah. It was awesome. Yeah. Why isn't this out in the world? This is so good. Yeah. And he wrote, yeah, DreamWorks has bought it, but they're just not doing anything with it. I can't get them to do anything. And then eventually they did that really slow release that included colleges and yeah. shooting the audience's reaction, cutting trailers and putting it online. But I'd be interested in Oren's position of what that, because there was a lot of, Discussion well, about I mean, that final I shot. think you'd have trouble now. Maybe now he'd be, he'd be happy to talk about it. But DreamWorks gave him that big series. That yeah, was right. a huge primetime series about 
I think like heading down the Amazon with with oh. all shot on um, found footage, and it's about okay. someone going in an exploration and discovering stuff. But yeah, it, I don't. I think Hang it on, was did that, not was, go well. Was that like a, a an explorer gone missing, and then a whole yeah, bunch yeah, of people yeah, 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 yeah. Watch some of that. Yeah, I forget it was, what it's called. It I forgot series, some of that. Uh, yeah, and it just didn't do well for mm. him. And I think after that, but that, I mean, everything we're saying, I think about it is it. It found itself in that space of. What is the genre now? Is is the genre the thrills of in-camera effects, prosthetics, models, miniatures, the whole history of the horror genre? Or is the genre, you know, there's this guy named Sean Cuber who uses this term, the impossible image of, you know, mm-hmm. of digital. That digital can create literally impossible images. Is that the genre? Is that where we locate? Well, I don't, I don't think it works with this, though. That's, it, I mean, that's what it proves. It doesn't work. But I don't believe whatever, whoever this... Nut job academic. <laughs> nah, I've never met the guy, but yeah. he could be nuts. Um, I don't know about this impossible image. Mm. I don't know if that's true. Like, one of the most outstanding and horrifying things I've ever seen is that Bunnell short film, The um, the Knife into the Eye. What's oh, that? The, 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 uh, yeah, 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 the dog. Bruno the white Gavi, dog, whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's horrifying. <laughs> like a, the shirt and Lee goes, yeah, the dog. The you know, dog. The, the white dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they grab the eyeball yeah, and they but cut it I'm, open. I'm probably misrepresenting Cubit. And so okay. it, what, what he's suggesting is that the, the, it's like the, the potential of digital images um, to create, you know, spectacle. And I do think you see a big transformation that yeah. takes place in the 90s. But you lose, Something changes in you cinema lose in the 90s. story. I think where this fails for me is that you took Stephen King's opening chapter, considered to be a, a masterpiece to get the novel started, and really very confronting at the time, depicting childhood violence like that is really uncommon. Um, and then the choice to turn it into a digital vehicle, which really foreshadowed what the rest of the both films were coming massively dig- digital. You know, they just weighed in on that. That to me is the great disappointment of mm. it because I think mm. they had something very special at the start with limiting themselves to the 80s time frame, and they sort of turned their back on that. I, and I, I think mean, that was a mistake. I, I think that's, for me, that's the, the, the great point and takeaway. If you look at The Force Awakens and the way J.J. Yep. Um, Abrams made press releases and tra- and cut videos together to say we're doing this practical everyone we're not going to do yeah. the mm. mistakes of the the pr- the mm. prequel trilogy you know and they deliberately tried to do a lot of it practical mm. in camera effects and it paid off for them i guess yeah. it, i mean it did well it, it's know. the same whether nolan with um what's that tenet, tenet. how you know they made a big deal of hey we're going to crush a 747 we're going to actually do it just like airport flying <laughs> high <laughs> die too it's the homage to 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 airplane <laughs> Tenet. Um, but I, I, I guess th- there's still this huge confrontation, I think, between analogical technology in cinema and digital. And I think it is a great example of that tension. Well, you look at the, what... I, I mean, I'm obsessed with the flesh in horror. Yeah, I don't know yeah. why. But Saw, <laughs> which is coming mm. out at the time of digital's boom... Yeah is doing the opposite. Yep. It's saying, let's bring it back to the flesh, let's yeah, bring yeah. it back to the visceral, disgusting or look things. at a guy like Cronenberg, right? Yeah. How come Cronenberg, his whole era of horror, where this guy was intellectual horror, philosophical horror, body horror, that's his thing, mm-hmm. can't do that now. You can't do body horror. Who, who gives this stuff about Well, it's body like the, the Fantastic Four when that um, <laughs> young director tried to do the... 
the body horror version of that yeah, comic right. book movie and yeah. it tanked and the studio hated him. Yeah. And body body horror, which you know has its height in early eighties through mid eighties. I just don't think you can do that now. Like a movie like The Fly doesn't make sense in an era where we think digitally about bodies. But is that because is that because we don't have studios that will fund this sort of thing and therefore you have no talented people who are willing to have a go with but it? But it's also kids on their phones who can do altered realities with Snapchat mm. and TikTok. They can turn themselves into a pig <laughs> and talk to themselves. Craig's having a rant. <laughs> no, <laughs> but that's true. Seen... Like kids don't understand yeah. okay, did you how the last you know, couple of days? locked into the flesh we are that like... <laughs> <laughs> I like, sound that, like a pedophile priest. Locked like into the flesh. Have you seen the creature. Tom Cruise deepfake on TikTok? No. That's unbelievable. All right, well, there it is. Big Stephen King loving. Oh, I want to say one thing about adapting Stephen King, and it's because of my own personal experience with Dee Wallace, who mm. was in my film Red Christmas. She told me the story of making Cujo and how King came to visit the set. And because Dee is an excellent actor, and she learned in her first film, which was... Ten Blake Edwards, really? Yeah, she was in ah, ten. I didn't know she was um, in like so, Dudley Moore's in yeah, that, yeah. and then he's in love with Bo, Bo Derrick. Derrick yeah. But um, th- there's one night he picks up a woman at a bar, and that's Dee, and that's her first feature film. Wow. And um, so she goes back to his room, and the the character goes back to the room, and the, they become amorous and stuff. And Dee said to Blake Edwards, "I don't think that my character would necessarily. This should all happen at the piano. I think it should yeah. move over to here because." It doesn't feel right. It feels like it's too fast for it just mm. to happen, snap like that. So Blake Edwards said, great. That means everyone has to stay back six hours to build the area over there and shoot that. And Dee went, well, I don't know if you, you know, don't blame me. <laughs> but then Blake was happy and gracious enough and everyone did it. And so yeah. Dee learned a lesson that you can, you know, if you talk to you, the director. You can impact. Yeah, and that an as actor, a, as an actor yeah. who, who is pr- just explaining their motivation and why a character might do something can influence a director. Mm. And she took that into everything she did afterwards with everyone from Wes Craven to you know Spielberg. But then when she was working on Cujo with Louis Teague, she felt being locked in that car every single day and screaming and that kid in the back seat mm. who's dying because he's not got the asthma, puffer stuff. She just went, oh, this kid can't die. If this is going to happen, this is going to be But just horrible. clarify, he dies in the novel. In the novel, yep. in Stephen King's novel, he dies. And yep. so she said to Louis Teague, dude, I don't think we should let this kid die. I really think it, the kid should survive. Mm. And I don't know if Lewis, I, I can't remember if Lewis had asked Stephen King, would that be okay yeah. if we changed it or if they just changed it? Yep. But then Stephen King came to the premiere, he saw it, and he came up and he said to Dee, did you make that change? <laughs> and she thought she was <laughs> a lot of She's stuff. like on the edge because of what he did yeah. to Kubrick. So this is Cujo, just, you know, what, what's it, like two, three years after The yeah. Shining? Yeah. And um, she said, yes. <laughs> and he said, okay, I really like that. I think that makes sense. This is a good one. And then after that, she said that, you know, she's, she's hung out with him again. And yeah, he yeah. said that was my favorite adaptation because yeah. I liked it, that change. But, he but said normally also, I don't like change. It, it improved on his version. He did. He right? thinks it was... Which is, I mean, for the guy that we've just berated for his um, <laughs> take on Kubrick Shining, that, that must have been But I think big... that's a good thing. And I think a D's performance, like, I really think that's an excellent performance. Yeah. Not just in a horror Look, film, she's but a, She is mm. awesome in your movie, Red Christmas. Yeah. I mean, she, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not just saying that because Craig's yeah. She's, friend, she's unbelievably important in E.T., She's incredibly yeah, important. Yeah. She's the as, mother and in, in fact, yeah. she's the only adult to have their face shown. Um, the the teacher, you've got like the back of the teacher and that, until the other doctor arrives. The I forget the, the name of the other doctor. You know, the, yeah. the 
doctor guys that arrive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a it's a film about capturing the yeah. the first person perspective of the yeah. children, except for Dee Wallace. Yeah. And, and also the, so the threat of adulthood yeah, and, and adults so in the state. In that film. Yeah. And she's amazing in that actually. Mm. All right, one last question. Right. I think uh, it's fairly clear we are fans of The Shining mm. over... Um, well, I'm never going to watch it again. <laughs> now, let me just put that out there. Wow. What is would Shining, or what is your favourite King adaptation, do you think? That's a really mm. very difficult question. I'd say Misery. I just oh, think it's yeah. one of the great movies. That wasn't even in my list, and now I'm like, damn, that's probably <laughs> you, like, my list I would not change. I would me, not change I 10 seconds in Misery. Nothing's dated. Yeah, yeah. Nothing. It's, it's, it's so tight. It's incredible. Yeah. Stand by me is unbelievable. Yeah, because they they all have different functions mm. in terms of just uh, movie style and something I can go back to over and over. Um, the Palmer's uh, carry oh, mm. yeah. is just uh, you can watch any scene over and over and over. It's just a marvel. But then again, um, Cronenberg's Dead Zone. Oh yeah, we that's a killer mention. That's an amazing. That is one of the best. I think that's actually regarded as one of the best Stephen King adaptations because Christopher Walken, he might even be nominated for an Oscar for that movie. I don't know, but that is a wonderful adaptation. But also, it's it it takes real skill, I think, on Cronenberg's part to weave those stories together. That book's about four hundred and fifty pages long. It's a big book to weave the stories together and not like make it fall apart. Yeah. It's it's hard. You've got a serial killer in it. You've got the president is going to destroy the world. <laughs> you've got telekinesis. <laughs> you, you, yeah. You've got Christopher Walken, yeah. who was going to marry this woman, and then they have a moment of romance and love. Yeah. Yeah. I find that love story very compelling. Like ah, it's so sad. All it, of it is perfectly is realized. It, yeah. um, it's a fantastic is adaptation. The woman, uh, I can't remember who plays her, but she. I, I agree with with everything you guys are saying. That love story, you know, Johnny, five years gone and then when he meets yeah. her again your heart if you contrast that with Tom Hanks meeting Helen Hunt <laughs> after being stranded and cast away I was about away, to say that yeah, you just yeah, want to yeah, uppercut yeah. Tom Hanks right yeah. this is uh, just the the uh, a feeling of being moved by this yeah. Yeah, romance it's Brooke but Adams. she's married she's married. she's married she's married and she's got yeah. a child Brooke Adams but she had an amazing him one night because it's what it's yeah. like it was meant to be. It was supposed yeah. to be. Yeah. You know, oh, um, the so book sad. is unbelievable as well. I absolutely love that book. Martin Sheen yeah, has never been better. He's an excellent. I, I he's, don't know he's what he's in that everything. villain. He's just great. He's Someone great. should do some work. He's Donald on Trump. Stephen Sheen King has actually said they said, "Why didn't you write about Donald Trump in a horror book?" And he said, "I already wrote that. That was the dead zone." <laughs> wow. Someone should do some work on Martin Sheen as a president or, mm. or in that presidential world because he's got the West Wing. He's got the West Wing as well, yeah. And then uh, he's on. He's in the American president, but I forgot he was the president of Dead Zone. So there's this kind of, you know, dark and light. And when he's holding figures. up that baby at the end and he's yeah. going like this with it, like <laughs> Martin Sheen, that's awful to watch. That is awful. Yeah, it's very good. No, All but right. a good question. Like, uh, it's King, I, I can watch The Shining anytime, but Carrie uh, is is really special as well. Well, there, there's a couple of recommendations for you. Obviously, you can read the book, uh, but if you're more like me, you might just want to watch the <laughs> movies. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Uh, do any of you have anything you want to plug? Any books out? Anything happening at the moment? I mean, if people want to follow my uh, my segment in the conversation, I do f- film analyses. So that's the conversation there's online. The conversation on, uh, online. It's a free kind of academic magazine type thing. And I do... Um, I pick a scene and I do an analysis of the scene. Oh, they're fantastic. Those, they're videos. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Well, you don't even <laughs> have to uh, read. 
<laughs> keep it real keep it uh, old school it like real. me don't forget to subscribe or follow us on your podcast app so that you'll see when our new episode is up join us next time as we look at two filmmakers very different takes on capitalism as we compare Oliver Stone's meme of the 80s Wall Street to Martin Scorsese's surprise smash hit The Wolf of Wall Street it might not be greedy but it will definitely be good <laughs> Goodbye for now, and see you next week. Take two. Film. Verse. Film. Verse.